Welcome back to another episode of Much Language Such Talk. It's me, Eva Maria, and I'm really excited about today's episode. Today, I'm joined by one of our volunteers, Mattia. Hi, Mattia. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, everybody. I'm Mattia. I'm a third year PhD researcher at the University of Edinburgh, and I'm doing research on second language acquisition and first language change in adult language learners. Fantastic. Welcome. So as I said before, and as you can tell from the episode title, we will be talking about language attrition. And don't worry if you don't know what that is, we will be covering that in a minute. And to do so, Mattia and I are joined today by Professor Monika Schmidt. And if you have ever looked up what attrition is, you will have come across her name. As a leading expert in the field, Monika received her PhD from the University of Düsseldorf, where she focused on language attrition in German-Jewish refugees who fled Germany before World War II. And after working in the Netherlands for 15 years, she then moved to England, where she's a professor of linguistics at the University of Essex. Her research focuses on bilingual development and, in particular, on change and stability in the native language. She also writes for The Conversation, where she has over half a million reads already. I've had the pleasure of attending Monica's classes in the Netherlands during my master's, and Mattia and I are both really excited for a conversation today. So welcome, Monica. Safe. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for taking the time in your busy schedule. Let's just dive right in. How did you develop your interest in languages and linguistics in general? I came about it a little bit through a side door. I actually studied translation of literature. And it was in my second half, I took a class in functionalist syntax with Professor Dieter Stein. And until then, I had had really very little interest in linguistics, but that really grabbed my attention. And I really thought it was very, very cool what the work that I was reading, what was done there. So then I stuck with it. So now you work on attrition. Would you mind defining what attrition is? Just give a simple, <laughs> as simple as possible <laughs> definition. Never ask a scientist about a simple definition or a simple explanation. I've tried to come to such a definition or such an understanding for a long time. And as some people have recently pointed out, the way in which I have defined attrition has changed over time. I personally don't think that is a sign of weakness, really, or of a bad scientist. I think if you work on something for 25 years and you never change your mind about what it is, then you're probably not doing a very good job. So my current approach to it is that when you have two languages that live in your brain, they mess with each other. And that is completely unavoidable. It is also completely normal. If you learn a second language, nobody will, particularly if you're an adult, nobody will expect you to be 100% perfect. I'm never going to not have a foreign accent in English. I'm just learning Spanish and I'm probably never going to be really, really good in Spanish. And I don't expect that. So we accept as a matter of course, that the native language will mess with any language that we acquire later in life. What we don't expect and what many people don't accept and what actually many people get very angry about is that the reverse is also true. If you have a native language and you have a second language which you develop, particularly if you use it relatively regularly and at a relatively high level of proficiency, the second language is going to interfere and mess with the first language in many, many different ways. 
it'll be evident in your pronunciation, it'll be visible in your word choice, it'll be visible in the fact that you sometimes can't remember words, it'll be visible in your grammar, it'll be visible in your strategies of politeness and all at all sorts of other levels. And all of those things are what I would call attrition. So you just mentioned that people have come forward quite forcefully. Mattia and I both do attrition research as well. And the term itself has been debated. Can you tell us why? I think for two reasons. The first one is this is something that I think I first really encountered that view in discussions with Vivian Cook as far back as maybe 2003, 2004, who said, I don't like attrition because it's, it's such a negative term. And the connotations are, I don't know, war of attrition and things like that. So that is the negative implications are one reason that people don't like the term. More recently, as we learn more about attrition, we find that originally when people first started looking at the phenomenon, which isn't really that long ago, it was really in the 1980s that this was put on the scientific agenda. And that was also a time when the competence performance distinction was still very, very strong and a big sort of conceptual reality in linguistics, which change to some extent. We don't call it competence performance anymore, all these kinds of things. But way back then, several people formulated very clearly and very explicitly that attrition only becomes interesting when it reaches the level of competence or when it reaches the level of representation. Now, more and more as cumulative research evidence has begun to emerge, it's become clear that that simply doesn't happen in mature speakers. Once you've learned a language monolingually and natively until about puberty, so until you're about 12 or 13 years old, it's stable. And in really none of the work that I am aware of, certainly none of the work that I have done, has there ever been any indication of somebody really forgetting, for example, no longer being able to apply the grammatical rule or really losing a phonological distinction or anything like that, anything of what we would consider the underlying structure, the underlying grammar of language, seems to be really quite resilient to any erosion. And the second reason why people object to the term attrition is because they hold that as a term, attrition implies structural erosion. So on that view, you can't use it to refer to a sort of superficial online phenomena that make up the bulk, if not the entirety of language attrition as we know it. Thanks very much, Monica. That's enlightening. And it certainly gave a, you know, a bit of a background on what we're talking about. Thinking about the myths um, surrounding bilingualism, which unfortunately are still many, if we think for a second about the effect of the L2 on the L1, you know, we know that, for example, this is often seen as a sign of confusion by many uh, or even described as a negative aspect. So what would you have to say about that? I don't think it's a sign of confusion, definitely. I think it's a negative aspect in the responses that you're likely to receive. If I was uh, mentioning earlier on that I sometimes write for the conversation, I wrote something quite recently about Ilaria Baldwin. She's an actor, but um, she's probably best known for being the wife of Alec Baldwin. And it's a bit... 
there's some history there. Um, people say she lied about her background. So she always sort of identified as a person from a Spanish background. Then people dug out her birth certificate and said, well, she was born in Boston and her parents are English. But if you listen to her speaking Spanish, it is actually quite clear that she must have spent a really substantial part of her childhood in a Spanish-speaking environment. So I, I have no, I have no knowledge. And not really that much interest, to be honest, <laughs> in where that person grew up and, and what happened. What I find interesting is there are some videos of her, one where she's in a cookery show and she's saying, oh, we're going to make gazpacho and here's a, and then you take the, what do you call it in English, a cucumber. And she really sort of, you know, it's like, oh, I can't remember the English word for this. And the fury you get in the in, on the internet about things like that, you know, fake Spaniard, and she's pretending to forget. And there are other videos. Sometimes she has a stronger Spanish accent. Sometimes her English is more sort of monolingual American English-like. And you see this all the time, of course, even if you're not a famous person, you know, if you'll, you'll know if you go back to Germany, people say, ah, come on, you know, you're now pretending you've lived in Scotland for five minutes and you're no longer able to speak German properly. Yeah, they call it pretentious or just like think harder, try harder. Exactly. And people just kind of tend to forget how dynamic bilingualism is. Yeah, there seems to be this this really accepted view that this is something that does not happen. And that, I think, is the true negative of what being multilingual does to your native language. I think the effects in themselves, as I said earlier, there is, as far as I'm aware, if you were over age 11, 12 or so when you migrated, when you became bilingual, then your native language is safe structurally. You know, you'll always have it to fall back on. But those little things, you know, okay, you develop a little bit of an accent. Well, if you move around, if I, I was raised in Stuttgart in southern Germany, where people have a very strong regional accent, we moved away from there. I mean, I was just about 12. I lost the accent within three months. And my mother also, who, of course, was an adult at the time, also changed her accent. So if it happens within the same country, nobody would be surprised. But if it's another language that enters into the mix, then all of a sudden you're just this big fake show off. And that, I think, is a negative effect, which is the result of people being insufficiently aware of what's going on. And that's why I tend to try to push the message out beyond the scientific community. And of course, then you always see that people say, you see the responses to the articles and people just won't be convinced. My favorite story about this is, this was again a piece that well, let me backtrack. You know how when you read things about bilingualism in the papers, you basically see the headline of the article. You think, oh, I know what the article says. I'll go straight to the comments. There was an article in The Guardian about, it was called The Joys, of, the Joys and Benefits of Being Bilingual or something like that. And there was one comment at the bottom which said, oh, yes, I know what it's like to be bilingual because I'm an English native speaker, but I've lived in France for a long time and I find it very difficult. My wife doesn't speak any English at all. And when I try to speak English these days, then I drop in French words and I find it very difficult. 
And that poor guy had the scorn of the internet poured all over him. People said, oh, you know, I don't, firstly, you should have taught your wife English. And secondly, I don't believe that you're losing your English. And then other people came to his rescue and said, or to his support and said, yeah, no, this happens all the time. And then a couple of months later, a piece that I had written on the conversation was published in The Guardian. And again, of course, I looked at the comments first. And one of the first comments that were posted there was somebody who said, this entire piece is utter nonsense. And so you think, all right, you know, uh, nice to have that gotten straight, you know. And then other people again weighed in and said, oh, no, it's entirely believable. It's happened to me. It's happened to my wife. It's happened to whoever. And then the guy came back and said, okay, so I live in the reverse. I speak French all the time. And I never have any problems when I speak English and blah, blah, blah. And also, I have a friend who speaks five languages, and it never happens to her. And firstly, what was interesting about this little response was that it was full of structures that were ungrammatical in English. So clearly, the person, while saying, my English is perfect, literally, that was what he said, my English is perfect. He was using French-type constructions and so on all over the place. So he provided examples without knowing it. He was unable to write 150 words without showing evidence of his attrition. Wow. The second reason why it was interesting was that it was the same guy who two months earlier, in response to that piece about the benefits of bilingualism, had said, I find it very difficult to speak English because it is so rare. I drop in French words all the time. So... You know, how can you convince people, even though they've said two months earlier, this is what happens to me, they read a piece like that and said, it's entire nonsense, it never happens. (laughs) That's just tiring. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what else to say to that. Oh, well. (laughs) Maybe for those instead that um, are interested and do want to learn about attrition, what would you say plays a role primarily in attrition? I know you've talked before on a very basic level why attrition happens, what happens when, you know, we've got two languages constantly active in our minds. But for example, would you say that some people tend to be more prone to attrition than others? Could you elaborate a bit more on that? I wish I could. Um, (laughs) The problem is that to date, there is relatively little evidence. So if you take what I can predict quite confidently is that if you go out and you take a substantial proportion of attritis of whatever language combination you choose, and you give them a test looking at anything, whether it's their pronunciation, whether it's their grammar, whether it's their lexicon, anything at all, of monolinguals, you will find that at the group level, unless the task that you chose is too simple, at the group level, you will find a difference. So the controls will outperform the arthritis. What you will also find is that the performance of the arthritis is spread across a broader range. So there will be people who do quite a bit worse than the controls. So the controls will be more similar to each other and the arthritis will be more different from each other, which is a really good starting point. And then you're going to take everything you know about your arthritis. You're going to try and measure how frequently they speak the language. You're going to look at how long they've been away from the country. You're going to look at their attitudes. You're going to look at their educational level. You're going to look at how frequently they read or watch films or write emails or chat or do whatever else. And then you're going to put all of this into a statistical model. And then you're going to find absolutely nothing whatsoever. 
<laughs> Isn't that reassuring? <laughs> yeah, I'm about to finish my PhD, so thank you. Yeah, no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and on the other hand, I can also predict if you take three people that illustrate the full range of arthritis. So what you what you're also going to find in this study is that you will find a substantial proportion of people, probably about half of them who will perform within the range of the monolinguals and the other half to a third will fall outside that range, right? So you take somebody who's at the top range of the monolinguals, you take somebody who's at the bottom range of the monolinguals, and you take somebody who's clearly outside the range of the monolinguals, and you show these examples to 50 people on the street and say, these are all people who haven't lived in their native environment for so and so long, and here's how they differ from each other. Why do you think that is? And all 50 of them are going to say, oh, the person at the top. And that we clearly know to be wrong. We clearly know that simplistic measures of language use don't work. It's not, and I get it all the time when I talk to people and I say, oh, you know, you've, you've lived in England for so long. Do you find that you're Italian or you're, in, what's your native language actually, Mattia? It's Italian. Italian. Yeah. yeah. So do you find that you're Italian or you're German or you're Spanish or whatever? Has it changed? And then they will either say, no, I don't think so, but I speak it all the time. Or, oh, yes, it's changed because I just don't have the opportunity to speak it. And then I say, well, the causality that you're applying here is wrong. It doesn't work like that. For example, if you have, if you, Mattia, if you have an Italian partner and you use Italian with each other all the time, the likelihood is that those tiny changes that happen in everyone's language, because we use a second language all the time, those tiny changes, you'll bounce them off each other and they'll kind of accelerate each other. So you will live in a situation of accelerated language change, a sort of microcosm in which your language evolves quite rapidly. And that's another reason why people object to the term attrition, because it's not necessarily a process of deterioration. It's a process of evolution. Your language is Mm -hmm. changing as any language changes at any point in time. What we find is that if the objective is to maintain a version of the language that is as close to the version that you spoke when you left the country, the one thing that does help is if you use it professionally, if you use it in a professional setting. But if you just speak it with other bilinguals, Mattia, if there are lots of other Italian PhD students that you talk to all the time, and sometimes you talk Italian, and because you talk about your topic, you code switch all the time because we find it so difficult to talk about our research in our L1, you're probably also caught in a kind of circuit of accelerated speeded up language change. So quite opposite to supporting and maintaining your L1, you're actually changing it much faster. I have seen people who have very credibly assured me that they haven't spoken their native language for four to five decades, who are still perfect. I have seen people who speak it every day who do not sound like native speakers at all, and the reverse. Speaking of the process of attrition, what is what is affected first? Like, Are there structures of language that are more prone to attrition than, for example, you mentioned something about the 
phonology and the accent. So what would be, what would go first? I cannot tell you what goes first because there are no real longitudinal models that have followed people through the first months and years of the process to kind of charter, you know, when do you have the first word finding difficulties? When is the first time that you pronounce something strangely? People also often ask what is affected most dramatically. And again, it's a question that has no meaningful answer. How can you compare occasional word finding difficulties on the one hand and a slight or more pronounced foreign accent on the other? There are no meaningful units of comparison. What people tend to assume may be partly because that's where you find the most consistent differences between atritis and monolinguals is on the one hand, the lexicon, word finding difficulties, the diversity of the lexicon, speed in tasks such as picture naming tasks, in verbal fluency tasks and all these kinds of things. So how you pull the words out of your mental lexicon. Another factor that seems to be affected quite consistently is fluency. So atritis, all bilinguals in all of their languages tend to have more sort of enhanced hesitation patterns, maybe. And pronunciation, I mean, there are some really, really interesting studies showing that, I mean, Charles Chang did his PhD on English pronunciation of people who were monolingual until they took, they were adults and they took an intensive six-week course in Korean. And at the end of those six weeks, their pronunciation, the production, I think, had um, changed measurably. Yeah, it's super, super interesting. So we kind of mentioned it earlier that some people, especially on a personal level, find attrition quite frustrating. And I can, you know, say that from experience as well, that once I moved to the Netherlands and started learning Dutch, that I almost by the second felt that my English was taking a toll, basically, because I took an intensive course, a four week course in Dutch that brought me to B2 level. So for me, that was very frustrating because I had just lived in the US. My English was great. And then Dutch happened. And all of a sudden, everybody told me like, what's wrong with your English? All of a sudden, you sound so German and all of that. So I can sympathize with all the people that find attrition frustrating. So if you think of that, how does attrition affect the perception they have of themselves as being a proficient or native speaker? Is that something to be worried about? Well, I think that is, for me, the main reason why I think all of these ideas that people have of people, you know, sort of presenting themselves, of, of showing off, you know, saying, I'm so multilingual, I'm so multicultural, look, I can't even speak my L1 perfectly and fluently anymore. Why that is just nonsense, because if you look at any atritis struggling with anything, you know, I mean, the last thing in the world that we feel at that moment when we can't remember a word or when we're sort of find ourselves in the middle of a sentence and realize that there is no way in the world that that sentence is ever going to have a happy end. You know? <laughs> it's just going to... Yeah, it's everything but glorious. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the last thing we feel is cool and competent and confident and multicultural. We feel like total dorks. And that is difficult to deal with. I said, I think it was in, that was in the, in the piece that was republished in The Guardian. I said, if you're an atrite, you feel maybe not so much like a fish out of water, but 
a sea lion out of water, you know, where you normally would be kind of elegant and in your element and moving about fluidly and with grace and whatever. You're just sort of stuck on the land and you flap about <laughs> and you're just this big, <laughs> massive lover that isn't really going anywhere whatsoever. It looks sort of slightly ridiculous. That's a good metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly how I feel when I, yeah. when I try to speak German these days. Um, yeah. In German, oh, it would be a disaster. Yeah. I was talking to a friend on the phone yesterday and she asked me, she said, she's German and she uses English all the time for her work. And she said, they're going to France in the summer. She, her French used to be very good. And she said, she's going to learn French, reactivate her French. And she said, do I have to worry about my English? And I tried to explain to her what I think is going on in her brain. And it was a disaster. I was fumbling about, I, I knew exactly what I wanted to say, but I just didn't know Not in to German. Say it. Not in <laughs> German, exactly. So yeah. is it a problem? Well, what's a problem? A problem is what you perceive to be a problem. I mean, if you say, okay, this is just, it's just how it is. And I have to accept, and this is very important, that specialized skills that link to how you communicate something do not transfer automatically from one language to the next. I have a little task that I sometimes give my students. I say, imagine you are of Pakistani heritage. You're, you grew up in the UK, but your parents always spoke Urdu. So you're fluent in Urdu. Your main dominant native language is English. And you trained as a nurse, you trained in English, you always communicate in English. And then you go to, and then at some point it's COVID and an, an elderly patient is admitted to the ward and he has virtually no English. And so you start communicating with this person in Urdu. How would you feel? And they all say, oh, I would, it would make me feel good because I would be helping this patient and because I would, you know, I would. And I say, yeah, but what you would also do is you would abandon the professional detachment because building up professional detachment between yourself and the people you work with is part of what you learned as part of your training as a nurse. And you never learned to do that when you use your native language. So what might also happen is that you neglect other patients unprofessionally because you want to give this person because you have a bond with this person because you never learned how not to have this bond but you cannot afford that now imagine the patient is not a lovely 90 year old gentleman but is somebody in their 40s and then that person starts overstepping the bounds because you started to overstep the bounds first you know and that person starts to sort of harass you or become sexually inappropriate we cannot assume that because we can do something in one language, we've just talked about it with respect to our research, but it, it extends to everything else in exactly the same way. We cannot assume that because we speak two languages at a high level of proficiency, we can do the thing that we can do in one language automatically in the other, that it just transfers. It doesn't happen. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's a really good point. And I certainly relate to the feelings of frustration that we were talking about before and the metaphor that you, Monica, put forward. I uh, actually, when I talk to people about this, I usually say like, as frustrating as it sometimes can be, it's good that it happens because otherwise we wouldn't have anything to research. So, <laughs> I, just, I just see it from that angle. So. so yeah, linking to what we've just said, do you think, is there anything that you think that a speaker can do to somewhat lessen the impact of attrition and connected to that once attrition takes place 
Is it a process that's actually irreversible or does it change? It's a question that's often asked. The question about irreversibility, I'm afraid, is another one that I think is, if you think about it, is probably meaningless. Because we assume, don't we, that these days, mainly, that anyone can learn any language at any point in their lives. If I can learn Spanish now, and I'm not doing as well with it as I would like, and I know exactly why, it's not. It's nothing to do with a critical period, it's nothing to do with anything else, it's probably not even that much to do with my age, it's just to do with the fact that I don't have enough time. But if I had enough time, I could learn Spanish probably to a fairly high standard. I was able to learn Dutch to a fairly high standard in my early 30s. So if I can learn a new language from scratch and get very good at it at any point in my life, then of course it makes no sense whatsoever to think that I can't also learn something that I already knew at some point and then forgot. So that's the first bit about the irreversibility that just simply doesn't make sense to me. If there was such a thing as real forgetting of the language, then we'd have to sort of say, not is it irreversible in the sense that I can't get it back, but is it irreversible in the sense that the advantage that I have in getting it back over somebody who is trying to get it and never had it. And then it gets so complex that it just really can't properly be measured. But if you think about what I said earlier, in any case, structural erosion is probably something of the native language, is probably something that doesn't exist in the first place very much. So what does exist is languages messing with each other in my brain, my pronunciation of things changing, my sometimes possibly my interpretation of words changing. There's a lovely example from somebody in, in German this was one of the German Jews that Eva mentioned at the beginning, was talking about how during the pogrom, November 11th, 1938, the Nazis coming into their home and destroying everything. And the word that she used in German was zerstreut. They destroyed things. They have as zerstreut. Now, zerstreut in German, it means to scatter. And the word that she was meaning to use was zerstören. And of course, what you have here is you have the sound structure of to destroy destroyed, zerstreut, and the sounds go together. So these kinds of things, that's really where the languages are messing with each other and where you get this kind of blended form. And there's probably no way to avoid that happening in your brain. If languages reside there, they are in contact with each other. It is possible probably to reduce the impact of it in your speech production and in your language use. If you have, say you want to return to the country where you came from and you're writing job applications and you're going on job interviews and things like that, if it's something where it's really important, because of course, in a job interview, you will be judged not only on what you know and what you say, but you will be judged on how you say it and how you present yourself. So under those circumstances, I would recommend very, very strongly to try and expose yourself back into the language as much as you can for a few days. What we know from the few studies of attrition and re-immersion in the native language context is that people tend to bounce back to monolingual native levels on most of the features that have been studied and have been looked at within days or weeks. So in response to your question, is it reversible? I think it definitely is, and very quickly too. Can you avoid 
If you're, you know, living in an L2 environment, well, as I said before, if you work with the language, if you use the language in a professional context, if you're a teacher or a translator, interpreter, any kind of thing like that, that will minimize the impact of your speech production of cross-linguistic interference. Now that is reassuring. (laughs) (laughs) There's hope. I mentioned that I found attrition frustrating, but in the context of my third language and second language, and that's what I'm focusing on right now for my PhD. But is attrition more common in the native language, or is it also something that happens in foreign languages a lot? Well, the interesting thing is, I do this often when I give a talk. I say, how many people in this room think that they have at least one language in which at the present point in time they are not as proficient as they used to be at some point in the past absolutely everybody shouts here and most of them think it is a second language and they're all wrong (laughs) (laughs) from the the research that we can see attrition of second languages is actually just as limited as attrition in the first language and also probably as reversible Not if you were at a very basic level. I think at a very basic level, probably A1, A2 can, but this is just my gut feeling that it's around that level. But if you are fairly proficient, you can recover whatever you once had in your second language, probably just as quickly, maybe not quite as quickly, but also very quickly as in the native language. What we find, of course, what you said earlier, I found it interesting when you said you started learning Dutch and the language that was affected was your strongest L2. I think I have this sense that the brain sort of labels languages not not even at the top level, not at English, French, Dutch, Spanish, German or whatever, but there is sort of native language and then there's all the other languages. And when you try and speak, so first of all, you make the decision, am I going to speak native language or foreign? And then you sort of trickle down through foreign into the language that you want. And that's why they mess with each other. My Spanish, I went to a PhD defense or I went to, haha, (laughs) the same desk, but the PhD defense in Toulouse a couple of months ago. It was a disaster. I can't say a single grammatical French sentence anymore because particularly the words, the Spanish words, not even just the cognates, everything just gets in the way. But that'll sort itself out. Once my Spanish has stabilized a little bit and everything, you know, it was the same at first when I started learning Dutch, my French took an absolute nosedive. Yeah, the thing is that maybe, I don't want to say that my English was more affected than my German when I learned Dutch, but English was the most frustrating because for my German, there were actually quite a few funny moments when I went home. And because Dutch and German are so typologically close, I just started translating idioms word by word into German that did not make sense at all. And my mom just kept looking at me like, what you're saying are German words, but they do not make sense. (laughs) So I can't say that my German was not affected because it definitely was, but English was really what frustrated me the most. So getting back to what we were saying, I mean, most of our discussion, I think, has revolved around the attrition that uh, happens when someone lives for perhaps decades abroad, right? And of course, they have less chances to speak in their native language. Fernando is asking, do you have anything to say about attrition perhaps happening in a non-immersed environment? Like, is that possible? Um, Yes. So there is um, some research, very interesting stuff. This is really about, for example, the mechanisms that we use to help our brain get at words. 
for example, things such as we are quicker to access words if we're primed with another word that shares the same onset. So all these kinds of mechanisms that help us structure, for example, our lexicon, our vocabulary and things like that, we find that there are very similar effects on people who study a second language at fairly basic levels, actually. So there have been studies at American universities with previously monolingual American students who are starting out on Spanish courses that these sorts of things take place very, very quickly and has also found that this is not something that happens only in immersed contexts. So I think what's going on is really, as I said before, two languages residing in your brain, irrespective of the environment that you find yourself in. It's probably more pronounced in a second language environment, but I think there is the difference is probably a quantitative one, not a qualitative one. Fair enough. Thank you. And do you think among the different factors, like we said, uh, can influence attrition? What is the role of age? Oh, it's, it's crucial. Everything I've said today only applies to people who were over the age of 11 or 12, when they became bilingual. Before that, the native language is vulnerable. So the resilience is really, the resilience of the language knowledge is really, really tied to that age. And not only the native language, any language that you learn before then. I mean, we always hear about these children of diplomats who travel around and become absolutely fantastically native-like. I talked to a colleague, he also works in L2 attrition, and he said he and his family lived in Japan for a while. His two girls went to kindergarten there and became absolutely age-appropriate very, very quickly. And I think they were four and six when they left, and they were totally fluent in Japanese. He and his wife learned Japanese, but were, of course, nowhere near as easy for them to pick it up as it was for their kids. And then they went away, and within a couple of years... He and his wife had retained pretty much everything that they knew, and the kids had lost it completely. So when Japanese friends came to visit, there was no way that the kids could communicate or understand anything anymore. Wow. And we see this, I mean, all of these very shocking studies of adoptees, people who were adopted at fairly late ages that are always being cited, Christophe and all that stuff. And it really quite clear, we know this from heritage language children, children who had developed absolutely age appropriately until they started school and then refused to speak the language anymore, lost it entirely. Quite a drastic change, yeah, of course. The example that you just gave with English and Japanese, uh, because those are languages that are not related, does the typology of the languages play a role in attrition? So, for example, does attrition for a French speaking person in Spain happen faster than if they were to move to Japan? Yeah, I think there's no question that that is the case, of course. I mean, you and I, we've both lived with the impact of Dutch on German and realized that it's much harder to keep your languages separate when they're so similar to each other. So if you have, obviously, if you have two sounds that are equivalent, it's not going to be a problem. It's hard to say how much of that really exists ever in language beyond the sound system. There's probably never going to be total equivalence in the lexicon, for example, or in grammar. If you think of Dutch and German, that's a really good example. Dutch and German word order are very, very similar. 
And so these are probably the kind of minimal little differences where it's easiest for something to creep in. So Flega says if it's equivalent, it's no problem either to learn or to maintain. If it's completely different, it's possible to acquire, possible to maintain. But if it's sort of sufficiently similar, that's where the problem is. Because if you are a second language learner and your native language is German and you learn English and English has the sound that German doesn't have, then you are likely to take the closest equivalent in your language and say, oh, this is like a sub-phenomenon of German S. A German might pronounce sink and think as the same word. And the more of these kind of sufficiently similar things you have, that's where the languages can mess with each other. The more you have, the easier it is for the languages to mess with each other. We've talked about language typology. Um, what about uh, orthography, for example? Do you think that orthography may play a role um, in, in language attrition? And also, do you think that uh, perhaps spoken language may attrite faster than um, written language? Or the other way around? <laughs> <laughs> or the other way around. <laughs> So with orthography, that's one, that's another thing about, about similar languages. I don't know if you will probably have um, found that as well. Dutch and German have loads of words that are pronounced more or less the same, but spelled differently. Yeah. And it is. It's a nightmare. So it's a nightmare. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I have a good friend whose second language is French. And she consistently misspells the word relative in so relative in, in German is spelled with T-I-V. In French, it's spelled T-I-F. And in Dutch, it's spelled T-I-E-F. With a, with a sort of lengthening E in there. My spelling in both Dutch and German is disastrous these days. Also yeah, because yeah. I missed the German spelling reform. I guess before <laughs> then, very wisely. <Yeah. laughs> so that's something. I don't think there has been any research on any of the questions that you just asked, Matthias. Just from my gut feeling, if you grew up in Russia, went to school in Russia and learned to read and write in Cyrillic or in another language that uses a different writing system yet again, I would find it hard to imagine once you've really learned it and once you've become a sort of native, if that is a concept in, in writing. I haven't done any research on writing and writing systems, so I don't know very much about it. But I would find it hard to imagine that that would really erode that yeah. the use of these. I mean, like I said, you may find that you struggle with the spelling of some words under the influence of the spelling. And I think, again, that would be more pronounced in languages such as Dutch and German, which share the same writing system and share cognate words, but write them differently. That makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> Thank you. So to come back to your uh, PhD topic, which was about um, German-Jewish refugees that fled during uh, the Nazi regime, which is a very, very intense topic, of course. But um, can you tell us more about whether those traumatic events, like fleeing your home, I'm leaving everything behind under these circumstances. Like, do these traumatic events accelerate attrition or what is the effect of that? This really is the only study that has ever found a correspondence, probably because it looked at a very, very specific circumstance. They didn't flee the war, 
obviously, because the war had not yet happened, they fled um, from persecution. The problem when you look at anything like that is if you go to people decades later and say, you know, what is your attitude? How do you feel about Germany? You're assessing how they feel about Germany decades later. You're not really assessing. And it's it's very hard to go back to try and reconstruct attitudes and identity at that time. Also, it's always very hard to really tap into underlying attitudes, particularly if you are a German person. You go there, you know, they think, oh, there's this nice young PhD student come here and I have nothing against her. So I'm not going to vent all the pent up anger and hatred that I very justifiably hold against Germans. You know, she has nothing to do with that. So it's really, really hard to get at these kinds of things. So what I did was I, I, I started from a historical perspective. Persecution of Jews did not sort of fall from the sky on the 31st of January 1933 when Hitler seized power and then dissolve again into thin air on, t- on, the, uh, on May the 8th, 1945, and everything was fine again. It proceeded in several very clearly delineated stages, and there were kind of key events that um, really qualitatively changed the experience of life in Germany for German Jews. The first phase was between the seizure of power in 33 and the Nuremberg Laws in 35. During that first phase, there were boycotts, there was exclusion from schools and universities. So persecution was mainly targeted against public life. And then with the Nuremberg Laws, it became personal because there were legal definitions of who was a Jew, which were the, uh, who who was deemed to be a Jew. This was sort of, you know, all, all those crazy laws about purity of the race and all that total nonsense. And so for the first time, Being a Jew was not something that you could kind of escape from through adopting a Christian faith or or anything like that, because it was defined through your ancestry. And then based on that, there was this absolute flurry of petty and not so petty laws on the local level, on the regional level, on the national level. You know, in, in this town, they're not allowed to use the ice ringer and they're not allowed to sit on these benches. But also, you know, you're not allowed anywhere in Germany to marry somebody who's a Jew and an air quotes Aryan are not allowed and all those sorts of things. So that was when it became personal, when it really became a much more fundamental part of your identity that you were excluded. And then you have the pogrom in, in November 1938, where it became clear that your physical integrity and the integrity of your home there was no longer any protection for any of that. And so I looked at these German Jews, depending on which of these periods they had experienced when they had left Germany. And there was a very, very, I was absolutely surprised by how clear the picture was. There was a very, very clear um, change from phase to phase. The people who had left the earliest were by far the best in how they spoke German. And the people who had left the latest were by far the worst across everything that I looked at. That's super interesting. Yeah, I did one sort of little study where I looked at, firstly, I looked at the syntactic construction used to describe 
crimes that had been committed by the Nazis against Jews, either sort of in general or personally towards them. The people who left in the earliest phases overwhelmingly used the passive. This was done. It was destroyed. The people in the last phase overwhelmingly used the active. They destroyed. They did. They beat. They arrested. And the people in the middle use this impersonal construction that's very typical of German. Uh, it, it doesn't really work very well in English. You know, one did this. Man hat das gemacht, which is, which is very common in German and not at all syntactically marked in any way. So it also became quite clear. I also looked at the pronoun we. Who did they include in the pronoun we? And um, the people who left later, when they say we, about their time in Germany, they only use the pronoun we to talk about themselves and either their immediate family or other Jewish friends. They never use the we to talk about themselves and friends who weren't Jewish or other people who weren't Jewish. So wow. it really, really shifted. Yeah. The way you described it, that, you know, the ones that left at an older age that they used the active form, that just gave me chills because that is... Not at an older age, in a later period. Or a later period. Yeah. So they they stayed past, ni past what November was their, 1938. What was their age? Um, Very varied. Okay. okay. Mean, I think the youngest that I looked at was 11 and the oldest was 40. And there wasn't any significant difference right. between that in any of the three periods. Yeah, that's that's very, very interesting. Again, sorry, Mattia, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use German as an example one more time. <laughs> Because of these circumstances, and we also covered this in an earlier episode with Lingo Flamingo, where languages are taught to people in care homes, for example, and the attitude towards German um, is always a bit difficult, um, where, for example, one, I think it was an elderly gentleman who, towards his German tutor, was just like, oh, but you're a nice, you're nice for a German. And she asked him, like, so how many Germans have you met? And he was like, oh, you're the, you're the first one. So like the attitude is always still, especially in like the older generation that still might even remember yeah. the war and the times that, you know, the, the, the attitudes, of course, play a big role. But do you think that, um, now that we talked about like traumatic events and everything, but also if you are in an environment that is quite judgmental towards your native language, do you think that that external force accelerates attrition as well? Or do you think that's... I think it really depends, and it depends on things like the size of the community. One of the things that we looked at in my research group in Groningen was um, attrition among Turkish and Moroccan Arabic speakers in the Netherlands. Now, as you know, Eva, those are languages that are viewed very negatively. One of the last things that I remember hearing on the radio before I left the Netherlands was that absolutely disgusting display where um, Geert Wilders, uh, the guy from this right-wing populist party, after some election thing, he did that thing. He, you know, the sort of, I mean, straight out of the populist playbook, I think Goebbels, Goebbels came up with the idea, you know, you ask people three different questions and make them basically say the same thing. So first they say, do you want more rules or fewer rules? Do you want more this or or less that? And, and then they say, and do you want in this city and in the Netherlands more Moroccans or fewer Moroccans? And the entire room shouted, minder, minder, fewer, fewer. Absolutely. Disgusting. I can't 
eat as much as I want to throw up. (laughs) (laughs) So it can really go either way. What happened with Germans who had left Germany as soon as World War II started, you could not speak German in public anymore. And because of this general horror that obviously and very justifiably they shared, for many people that was the time, and some of them have said so explicitly to me, they vowed they would never use German ever again in their life. If you are a member of a group where you feel you're being unfairly stigmatized, like the particularly the Moroccans in the Netherlands, and it's a fairly large and substantial group, and you have this kind of positive, you retain this positive self-image, and you retain a sense of groupness and a sense of, ident- uh, of shared identity, then it can, of course, go entirely the other way. I think societies know this, and I think right-wing populist people know this, you know, the louder you demand that these people have to integrate and they have to become part of society and they have to give up what distinguishes them, the more you reinforce their determination not to do that. Yeah, it's counterproductive completely. Yeah. So the judgmental environment can swing both ways is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we know um, you've created um, a website, Monica, entirely dedicated to language attrition. We were wondering how you came up with the idea. You know, I think related to that too, could you talk about perhaps the importance of public engagement and, you know, of findings? Uh, Why is it so important, especially when it comes to, you know, language attrition and your other involvement, uh, for example, with uh, associations like Bilingualism Matters and the Center for Language Development throughout the lifespan? Uh, which you're involved with? Originally, this was the website was supposed to be really a resource for researchers. Um, I first created it, and at that time it was still hosted on the server of the University of Groningen, and then I migrated it after I left Groningen, I migrated it to uh, to its own domain. So at first it accompanied my, I wrote a textbook in 2011 that was supposed to be a resource for PhD students and um, and MA students uh, or or other undergraduate students even. So yes, there is a rest holding (laughs) attempt. It is still in tests and only I think £19.99 or something like that. So I put all the instruments there, the materials that I suggested should be used. And then I slowly started to to do this sort of little bit of outreach. I think the first time that I really got involved with something like that was in 2014 when this American soldier, Bill Bergdahl, was recovered from Taliban um, imprisonment. And his father said in a press conference, he has trouble speaking English. We never knew exactly what that trouble consisted of. But again, social media went wild. And the consensus was, of course, that Forgetting a native language, and particularly if that native language is American English, um, is a clear sign of being a traitor and a horrible human being and not a not a patriot and blah, 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 all of that. And so at that time, that was the first um, contribution I wrote for the conversation. I went on the radio and BBC wrote about it. And I thought, okay, you know, it's really a duty to stand up for all the people who experience this and who experience, like now, Ilaria Baldwin or whatever, you know, all the people who are in this kind of situation and are being 
discriminated against for something that they can't help. So that was how that started. And uh, and then I began to see more traffic on the webpage. I began to get more emails from people saying, oh, you know, I never knew the sort of general theme is somebody writes to me and says, I am so glad I found your website. I never knew that there was a word for what I'm experiencing. I never knew this was something that happens to other people as well. And that makes it worthwhile. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. And that was it. We've covered most of the questions we had gathered. Thank you very much, Mattia, for being here. And thank you so much, Monica, for taking the time out of your schedule to join us. So yeah, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Now you know that attrition is a normal process that happens to all bilinguals to some degree, and it's nothing to worry about or to be ashamed of at all. You heard the expert. If you as listeners want to learn more about language attrition, head over to Monica's website that we mentioned earlier, that is languageattrition.org. And if there were any terms we mentioned in this episode or in earlier episodes that you're not familiar with, check the glossary on our website, mlstpodcast.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and check Bilingualism Matters social media pages as well. Well, until next time, stay safe, stay healthy and... Adios. Ciao a tutti. Tschüssi.